Dr. D. Subarao had been at the helm of the Reserve Bank of India for just a few days. And then came the collapse of Lehman Brothers. What happened after that is now in public domain. The RBI had to respond on all fronts, whether it was liquidity or eventually trying to shore up growth through a cut in repo rates and a cut in cash reserve ratio, among a whole host of measures taken at that point in time. That was now 10 years ago. What was the experience like? And 10 years later, do we have a verdict on the unconventional monetary policy unleashed in the aftermath of Lehman Brothers? We are joined today here by Dr. D. Subarao. He's Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the National University of Singapore. And I don't need to tell this uh, set of viewers that he's the former governor of the Reserve Bank of India. Dr. Subarao joins us from Singapore. Dr. Subarao, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure speaking to you here on Bloomberg Quint. Thank you. Thank you, Ira. Let me start by asking you, Dr. Subarao, to uh, jog your memory a little bit. Uh, there were signs of trouble building up uh, even before the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Let me ask you how prepared you thought the Reserve Bank of India was now that you look back at that time. You know, if there's one central bank in the world that has prepared for the crisis, it was the RBI. It's quite well known now that the Reserve Bank and the Governor Reddy had instituted uh, measures, macroprudential measures like uh, uh, risk weights, provisioning norms, uh, loan-to-value ratios, all that the Reserve Bank did even before macroprudential became uh, fashionable in central banking. So the Reserve Bank did take some measures to firewall the Indian financial sector. But you know, to answer your question, it would be presumptuous to say that the Reserve Bank had anticipated a crisis of this uh, magnitude. For about one year uh, before uh, the Lehman collapse, we've had uh, signals coming in, you know, like uh, Northern Rock in England. Uh, there was the collapse of Bear Stearns, I think in March 2008, there was some problem with some German hypo real estate bank. There was a problem with BNP Paribas. There were lots of signals. And uh, a crisis erupted uh, out of that, plunging the global financial sector into a near-death experience. I don't think even the Reserve Bank anticipated that, as, even though it had taken protective measures. Uh, Dr. Subarao, uh, what were the most important steps to your mind that you took at that point in time? Uh, it was a combination of liquidity measures and then eventually growth supportive measures. Uh, but what do you think were the steps that actually prevented the Indian financial system and the markets from freezing? I really have to jog my memory for this, but I recall the first thing that we did really was uh, you know, firewall the two institutions uh, uh, of Lehman Brothers subsidiaries in India. Uh, Lehman Brothers filed for uh, bankruptcy sometime during the day or of uh, 16th September. That was night in Mumbai. Uh, the first thing we did was uh, firewall these two institutions. I recall there was a primary dealer and there was an NBFC, both subsidiaries of, uh, of Lehman Brothers. Uh, we ring-fenced them. The second in the night, we issued a statement saying that the Reserve Bank is keeping a close watch on the markets and is ready to take action. And that really had uh, quite a significant impact on calming markets. Uh, but you know, it was uh, a very difficult situation. Our financial system was under pressure in the days and weeks following Lehman Brothers collapse. Uh, the, stock market collapsed, uh, yields in the bond market uh, had zoomed, the call money rate went up, exchange rate had no start because capital fled, uh, there was uh, 
uh, foreign credit dried up. So, like you said, because of this, uh, the pressure building up, uh, our actions in the days and weeks following Lehman Brothers were guided by three objectives. First, we must maintain ample rupee liquidity. Second, douse the system with uh, foreign exchange liquidity. And third, we must, uh, at any cost, keep our financial markets going. And in order to do that, we took a number of measures. Of, of course, the most obvious uh, was cutting the CRR and SLR. But uh, we also cut the interest rate, repo interest rate, by as much as a percentage point. And uh, we took measures to increase foreign exchange liquidity by easing uh, access to ECB, for by encouraging NRI inflows, by easing uh, export credit. But we also took some un unconventional measures, like you know, there was uh, the knock-on impact of liquidity on non-bank finance companies, what we call NBFCs, on mutual funds. As much as reserve bank liquidity is available to banks, uh, that was not being passed on to these other financial sector institutions. So we provided a special window for liquidity access to NBFCs and mutual funds. I recall, I think, we also gave a special window for a, a special uh, line of credit for NHB and SIDB. So I think, we, as I recall now, we took a number of conventional measures as also what uh, would be called many unconventional measures. Sure. Uh, Dr. Subara, a slightly more personal question. Uh, it was a bewildering uh, situation, perhaps frightening. Uh, did you have fears and concerns uh, as you were sitting in that lovely office on Min Street? <laughs> of course, uh, you know, it'll be, uh, it'll be dishonest if I said that there were no fears and concerns, anxiety. Well, lots of them. There was concern, there was fear, there was uh, uh, dilemmas. Uh, you know, but the global financial system was uh, in an unprecedented crisis. Even veteran central bankers, experienced central bankers, were bewildered about uh, what is happening in the financial system, where the next bubble would burst, when the crisis would end, what direction it would take, what actions they have to take. So there was uh, fear in our system as well. And you know, uh, there was stories in newspapers, for example, about uh, uh, queues outside banks in some part of the country. And uh, there was fear in the Reserve Bank whether that was going to lead to a run on the bank. All these were misplaced. They were false stories, what we in today's phraseology would call fake news. But uh, nevertheless, there were stories like that. And also remember, uh, in the middle of the crisis, sometime in November there in 2008, we had the terrorist attacks in Mumbai that compounded the problem for us about the uncertainty and anxiety. Well. And, uh, you know, as far as dilemmas were concerned, there were very many. For example, as I said, uh, we cut the repo rate for the first time by one percentage point. And it was, it, it was not, it's not as if that was a clear-cut decision, um, because uh, there was a voice, there was a view within the Reserve Bank that if we cut by one percentage point, that would become a benchmark for the future. And uh, in the future, every monetary policy interest rate adjustment would be evaluated against that. Similarly, all these lines of credit for NBFCs and mutual funds. The concern was whether what were considered 
unorthodox measures would become routine measures and come to be expected. And let me give you some other instances, for example, deposit insurance. Um, in the UK, at some time in September, October, I can't recall exactly when, in 2008, uh, the UK had uh, expanded their deposit insurance to cover all deposits across the banking system. Immediately, uh, there was clamor, there was demand, uh, there was a view that the Reserve Bank too must expand deposit insurance. You know, if you had done something like that, uh, it would have actually, <coughs> excuse me, set up more anxiety rather than uh, 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 in a cure anxiety. If only because we were saying that our financial system was safe and sound, and in spite of that, if we went and uh, you know, expanded deposit insurance, people would have actually feared that something was, uh, um, and there was actually some pressure building up. So there were lots of dilemmas in policy making at that time. Absolutely. Dr. Subarao, you know, uh, you had written about some of these in your book, uh, uh, Who Moved My Interest Rate, which came out a few years back. But you'd also in that book said that it was a double whammy for emerging market central banks. Uh, can you explain that view, sir? <laughs> Yeah, what I meant by that was uh, that there was a lot of uncertainty for governments, for central banks all around the world, because uh, uh, there was anxiety about uh, which direction the crisis would take, how long it would last, uh, when uh, uh, the solution or resolution will come about. That uncertainty was across the world, both for advanced economies where the crisis erupted, and to emerging markets and the entire world. But on top of that, we had another layer of uncertainty because we also had to respond to policy measures by advanced economy central banks because whatever they were doing had an impact on us. Uh, as I said, for example, uh, you know, expanding deposit insurance or quantitative easing that they had embarked upon. So they were not only the uncertainty that everyone faced, but there was uh, an additional layer of uncertainty for us uh, in emerging markets. That's what I meant by saying that we had a double whammy. All right, understood. Uh, Dr. Subrao, what were, uh, you know, what were the sort of coordination mechanisms that were being followed at that time? I asked because as you were just highlighting, uh, you know, trouble was coming from all fronts. So it's not only that, you know, the areas which were under the purview of the RBI were facing stress. It was across the board, whether it was mutual funds, uh, the government would have had its concerns as well. Were there structures, special systems set up? Mm -hmm. Uh, not really. I would, I would not say there were structured systems, but some systems automatically evolved. But one thing you have to note, though, is that around the world, not just in India, but around the world, governments and central banks and other regulators were bending over backwards to show that they are acting collectively. Uh, in the US, in the UK, in Japan, in China, across Europe, uh, central banks and governments and regulators were taking actions together. And we did that in India too. Although in India that was uh, seen and interpreted as the Reserve Bank abandoning leadership to the government, but that's a different story. But uh, even in India, uh, we coordinated, discussed, uh, argued, and took actions, often separately but sometimes together. One instance that comes to my mind uh, is uh, the repo rate cut that we did sometime in October. I think that we did, uh, you know, I 
recall that very well because we cut the repo rate by one percentage point, which is unusual, as I said earlier. We did that uh, just four days before a scheduled policy review. And we did that at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning during market hours, or shortly before 11. Uh, that was a deliberate collective action uh, uh, of a number of measures by other financial sector regulators, including SEBI uh, and the RBI. We did that because the Prime Minister was going to make a statement in the Lok Sabha at 11 o'clock. So we released our measures shortly before 11 in order to prepare the platform for the Prime Minister's statement in the Parliament. And I think looking back, it had a significant impact and a very synergistic uh, impact on calming financial markets. So I would say that uh, acting together was a deliberate thing and uh, it, I, it did have a very positive impact. Uh, it certainly did at that time, Dr. Sobarao, but I have to ask you that the criticism in the aftermath perhaps was uh, that we didn't pull back on some of that easing, both fiscal and monetary in time, uh, which then led to you know, inflationary pressures for starters among others. So what's the question? <laughs> do, do you think we should have pulled back sooner? Do you think we delayed the pullback? Yeah, you know, one word answer would be yes. But let me elaborate. Uh, you know, uh, hindsight is always perfect vision, 2020, right? So looking back, uh, it's quite easy to see that the expansionary monetary and fiscal policy should have been withdrawn much earlier than we actually did. But remember, we were doing policy in real time. We were doing policy within the universe of knowledge available to us at that time. Throw your mind back to 2010, 2011. There was first talk of spring shoots, but it soon emerged that uh, spring shoots were actually false. There was no recovery. In fact, 2010, 2011, America was graduating from QE1 to QE2. In Europe, another crisis had erupted, the sovereign debt crisis. In fact, that was very much on the boil. Many countries that had talked about unwinding expansionary policies or had actually uh, withdrawn some of those measures had come to grief. So in the Reserve Bank in India, uh, the Reserve Bank had to do a delicate balancing act between preserving financial stability and fighting inflation. So. Looking back, it might look like uh, we had continued those measures, but uh, in real time, it was difficult to make that judgment. Sure. I must also add here one more dimension. Uh, you know, we were wrong-footed to some extent by data. Um, we now know, uh, regardless of the debate on growth rates that's going on in India at the moment, it's very clear, everybody's agreed that in the years before the crisis, India had a significant growth run. And that was because, uh, I, I, but after, after, the, after the crisis, growth collapsed. In real time, the numbers were showing us that growth was still very low. So we had to continue our expansionary policy guided by the growth numbers. Afterwards, it emerged that we in fact had a V-shaped recovery so if, in fact, we had more reliable data, we would have uh, withdrawn this expansionary monetary policy much sooner, uh, 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 much more rapidly, and much more decisively. And you made that point before, Dr. Sobarao. Uh, let me move to the global scene. Uh, 
what again asking you to jog your memory do you remember what your initial thoughts were when you saw global central banks uh, embark on uh, very unconventional monetary policy measures at that point in time uh, and 10 years later are you willing to uh, give a verdict of some sorts on whether you think there have been positives and negatives uh, to those policy uh, decisions well many people have weighed in on this issue but uh, let me give you my own uh, two bit on this uh, the uh, unconventional monetary policy comprised uh, quantitative easing, which is uh, uh, extraordinary uh, easing of monetary policy with an assurance that easy monetary policy will be maintained for an extended period of time, followed later on by negative interest rates uh, in, in Europe, in some Scandinavian countries, in Japan. Now, to evaluate that, uh, I think we must understand what the objectives of QE were. In my view, there were two objectives. The first was to repair broken financial markets. The second was to stimulate demand. I would say QE went a long way, unconventional monetary policies went a long way to meet the first objective of uh, repairing broken financial markets, but I don't think uh, they helped in stimulating demand. And you know, to go a step further, QE was more effective in America than in Europe or in Japan because uh, now looking back, it's quite clear that QE acts through the bond market. And America depends more on bond market than on banks like Europe. So QE had a much greater impact on, much greater result, a positive impact in the US than as we now see in Europe or in Japan. Now, of course, 10 years later, there's lots of uh, debates that QE has generated about uh, the equity dimensions of quantitative easing. Um, you know, there is criticism that QE has actually helped uh, uh, people with assets, the richer people, had actually accentuated inequalities. Some senator, you might recall, had actually um, accused or criticized uh, uh, Fed Chairman Bernanke of throwing seniors under the bus. There was also criticism, there's also criticism that uh, QE has actually engendered a moral hazard in the sense that uh, central banks took on the responsibility of, uh, uh, of uh, fighting the crisis with the result that uh, the necessary structural reforms that governments had to institute had not uh, come about. Some people have, for example, criticized that uh, you know, QE had prevented uh, the creative destruction. Some failed institutions should actually have uh, been allowed to die rather than uh, uh, give them another birth. So that creative destruction had been prevented. And as I see, the most important criticism is that uh, QE had actually sown the seeds of the next crisis. You know, these are all unsettled issues and they're not counterfactuals for many of this. So uh, we've learned a lot from this experience of QE, especially in advanced economies. We've learned a lot in emerging markets, but I don't think there is a, a decided uh, consensus on the impact of QE.
Sure. Uh, Dr. Subrao, I have two last questions. Uh, you know, we are in the midst of uh, the unwind process, uh, which will perhaps take uh, years. Uh, but tell me, uh, both you and Dr. Rajan, uh, who followed you at the Reserve Bank of India, have been arguing that uh, some of these developed market central banks need to be more sensitive to the fallout of their policies on emerging markets. Uh, have you seen that message being received in any substantial way across the developed world? Again, a one-word answer is no. Uh, but uh, let me elaborate. Uh, you know, uh, we talked about QE. Uh, the intention or the objective of QE, one of the objectives was that it would be used in advanced economies to stimulate demand. That did not happen because of um, a number of reasons. So that money, easy liquidity, sloshing around the global system, had come into emerging markets, um, had uh, uh, added to our concerns, had impaired or uh, uh, destabilized our macroeconomic stability, had um, uh, pushed up our exchange rates, uh, had uh, impacted our asset markets. So there was a negative spillover impact of QE from advanced economies on emerging markets. So the constant plea or request we made on all these international fora was that emerging markets should be more sensitive to the spillover impact of their unconventional monetary policies. The argument being that for about a quarter of a century, for nearly 20 years or 25 years, uh, the advanced economies and multilateral institutions, World Bank, IMF, were telling emerging markets to integrate, to globalize. And emerging markets had actually done that. There were positives and negatives of that. Uh, advanced economies benefited, emerging markets benefited. So the argument emerging markets made was that as much as both of us benefited, both sides benefited, uh, the burden of this QE must also be shared across the world. It should not be left entirely to emerging markets. That was the refrain of emerging markets. Advanced economies, uh, especially led by the US, their standard response to that was that uh, their mandate, mandate of the Federal Reserve or the ECB or Bank of England or the Bank of Japan is to take care of uh, their national interest. And if there's any spillover impact, they said that was an unavoidable, inevitable byproduct and they cannot do much about it. Uh, in fact, they went beyond that in some places to say that uh, we must set our own houses in order in order to uh, take on or manage the impact of uh, QE. So with the result that in most international fora, this became a dialogue of the deaf. And uh, I would say that uh, my own surmise is that as much as sensitized advanced economies, uh, international institutions to the problem of spillover impact, I don't think there has been any, any positive impact on ground. Uh, Dr. Subarao, uh, you know, uh, just last question. Uh, at this point, of course, we have the unwind of uh, unconventional monetary policy, which is there. Uh, we have currency wars, you know, trade wars. Uh, what would you advise uh, India, which you know very, very well, to do at this point in time? Uh, there is one constituency which says that perhaps it's uh, you know time to start withdrawing from the globalization process. There's already talk about import tariffs, etc. Even back home. What's your advice, sir? <laughs> That's a very, very omnibus question, you know, uh, and presumptuous on my part to try and advise uh, Indian authorities. But I would say in response to your question that uh, 
withdrawing from globalization would actually be the wrong response. Sure, uh, as I said before, I say it again, globalization is a double-edged sword. It comes with benefits and costs. The challenge is to manage globalization in such a way that we minimize the cost and uh, maximize the benefits. Let me illustrate this a little bit. Uh, you know, in the years before the crisis, uh, we had uh, a run of uh, good growth, and uh, that was in large part because of a benign global environment. Uh, we had uh, clocked 9 plus percent growth for, I think, five years on the trot. That was the positive side of globalization. But then Lehman Brothers collapsed and we were hit by the crisis. Uh, so that was, again, the negative side of globalization. So India had experienced, in the context of the crisis, both the positive and negative side of globalization. But as I said, uh, the response would not be uh, to withdraw from globalization, but to learn to manage globalization. And you know that in one phrase, that is, take care of your macro. Uh, keep your current account uh, within sustainable limit. Keep fiscal deficits on target. See that there's no pressure on the exchange rate. In other words, that uh, exchange rate is aligned as much as possible with the market forces. Inflation is low and steady. Financial sector is well capitalized. You have uh, ample foreign exchange reserves to fight any pressure. All this is very easily said. It's very difficult to do. But that, I think, should be the guiding mantra for protecting your own economy from global forces, even as we remain globalized. All right, Dr. Subbaraman, that's the advice coming from RBI even now uh, under your successor, uh, Urjit Patel. Dr. Subbaraman, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, looking back uh, at what was a massive event uh, 10 years back and how we've uh, sustained since then. Thanks so much, Dr. Subbaraman, for joining us.